So you said the invitation song is come, sinner, come. Three, two, four. In your big books. Three, twenty-four. Just wanted us all to be on the same page. Thank you, Clay, for leading us in singing this evening. And um, good to be with you tonight as we continue in this gospel meeting, a series of lessons on the subject of the home. The home is not of human origin. Homes are made up of humans. But the home is of divine origin. We didn't come up with the idea. Now, if you've, in your, in your education, in your schooling, if you've taken courses, for example, in sociology um, and anthropology, oftentimes the idea will be that um, as time goes along and as man evolves, somewhere along in this time scale, people decide that it's just better to have this, this family relationship and for protection, for everybody's benefit. But the idea really is that it is something that people came up with. And if that's true, and time goes on, and, and it looks like um, you know we, we could come up with better ideas to, and, and modify that and change that, you can see where people that reject the Word of God as their authority might be really confused as how to define marriage, what constitutes a home. But as we go to the Bible, the book that really gives the answers on where we came from, what our purpose is here, and what is beyond this life, that's the only book that authoritatively gives the answers to that. It also tells us about the home. God is the one. When we think of in terms of the good things in the home and the, the things you enjoy in the home, things that are so dear to you. We didn't invent that. God is the author of that. And so that's why we're talking about uh, in this series of lessons, the home as God would have it. Now, we submitted our titles uh, for your consideration and for advertising and talking it up among your friends. And uh, you can see that tonight's both lessons really have to do with preparation. Uh, preparation for marriage is what we're looking at at this 5 o'clock period. And then at 6 o'clock, by wisdom, a house is built, where we're especially talking about the Proverbs. But again, it's the concept of building the house. It still has to do with preparation, what goes into making the home as God would have it. Then in the morning, we get a little bit more specific in terms of looking first at the husband's responsibility and then the wives, the two sessions in the morning, and then tomorrow afternoon, the role of children. The Bible has a lot to say about that. And then problems are going to arise. But looking at the Word of God for scriptural solutions when problems arise. So that's, uh, that's the series of lessons for, uh, those are the, the title, uh, titles, I should say, for this series of lessons. So, preparing for a good home. In anything, preparation is involved. If you're going to uh, achieve most anything, there's preparation that goes into this. I was, re I was listening recently to a, um, a photographer who works for National Geographic. And it's, it's interesting, when, when, you, when you hear these people or read what they say, this, this was actually some lessons on photography that he had put together. But they'll take thousands of photos, maybe in a day take two or three thousand photos 
that National Geographic will use just one of those. That's, that's amazing to me. Just, and so you see one that really is the best. Well, that's best out of some thousands. But anyway, what I started to say is that he said that for every day that he is on site photographing the places, he has spent a day in preparation. So he's going to be a week somewhere. He'll spend a full, solid week doing research before he gets there. That's just taking pictures for a magazine. But the, what he says is if he waits till he gets there and then he tries to figure out the situation, what he can do and logistics and everything, he's going to waste all kinds of time. So it just doesn't matter what you're doing if you're going to build a physical house. Linda and I, in 1999, built our home. We served as our own contractors and did a lot of subcontracting, did a lot of the work. But there's a lot of preparation that goes into the house, figuring out what you want, taking taking this to an architect that can draw the, the, the blueprint. And then once you have that, here, here you've got, in our case, there, there wasn't a house on the place. This was a lot. And I mean, it was just grown up. It was grown up so much that we had, it's like, now where, where is the property line? And you stand here and, and you, you, you know, it's so thick with grown up stuff and privet hedge and all these unwanted things, besides good trees in the mix of that. Couldn't even see the property line very clearly. So there's preparation. All that cleaning up has to be done. You've got a bulldozer. He does preparation for the foundation. A lot of preparation goes into anything if you expect a good outcome. And so it is. A lot of times people enter into marriage and they've not really thought about the kind of things that God has said should be done to have a good home. And so that's why we're looking at his word in this series of lessons and talking about the importance of, of preparing. The thing is, when you talk about what makes for a good home, it would be very easy for you to think about the kind of person you need to look for in a spouse. And that is involved, and you must have wisdom in that. But if you will notice, my beginning point tonight is, first of all, looking to yourself. The first thing that we want to consider, really, is being what I should be. Not so much, well, what about the, the kind of spouse I'll have? What about the kind of person I'll marry? Being what I should be is where we start. There's a passage, especially in uh, Proverbs 16, verse 32, that I want to call your attention to. And here's what it, uh, here's what it says. Let me see. That's uh, okay. I, I thought I had the passage written out. Let's look at the passage. In Proverbs 16 and verse 32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. That's Proverbs 16, verse 32. Now, if you're familiar with the wisdom literature, if you're familiar with, the, um, with Hebrew poetry, what you have is a pattern of, well, it's the rhyming is rhyming in thought. And it can be a parallelism where you say one thing and then you say the same thing. The thought rhymes, but you've used different words. Sometimes it might be an antithetical statement where you say something and then the next thing rhymes in that it contrasts. You've just said the opposite for the purpose of comparison. And so he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And then the parallel thought is... He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So here's someone that is mighty. Have you noticed 
Well, you here in Savannah, there's so much history. You have streets that are named for generals. You have cities that are named for, for soldiers. And so mighty men have, have respect when they can lead others, when they can lead armies, when they can capture cities, when they can defend territory or, uh, in the case of the United States, to, to follow through on the Declaration of Independence so that you end up having the 13 colonies and then, of course, the United States of America. But you've got men that were leaders from Washington on down. And so here is the mighty. Here's someone who can take a city. That, that commands respect. That's important. That gets our attention. But he says, you know, there's something more basic than that. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. How could that be true? And really, what is the point of it? I think what he's saying is that no matter what other qualities you have, you might have leadership qualities, you might be able to lead men into battle, you might be able to take a city, but if you cannot control yourself, if you don't have self-control, nothing else will make up for that. When I read this passage, there are especially two people that I think of. One, his history is told in the Scripture, and the other is prophesied in Scripture. The first one I think of, whose history is told in Scriptures in the book of Judges, and that, that is Samson. Samson was a strong man. You know, when you, we, we talked this morning about the Bible periods in our first, first point, but when you think about the judges and how that they would lead armies and defeat the enemy, Samson didn't lead an army. Samson was the army. And so here, here he has such strength, and he begins to, to defeat the Philistines, and he, he could accomplish so much, but it's sad because he's really a story of, of wasted potential because you turn to, for example, Judges 16, beginning at verse 1, and you see that he lay with a harlot at Gaza. And so, and of course, everybody knows about Delilah and his attraction to her and how uh, he was robbed of his strength because of uh, giving in to her, her continued pressing to find out the source of his strength that she might have the money from the five lords of the Philistines. So you see, he had strength. He was mighty. But that didn't make up for the fact that he did not have self-control. The other one I think of is prophesied by Scripture, and that is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is a subject of prophecy in the book of Daniel. As Daniel looks ahead beyond the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians, he talks about next the, the Grecian Empire. And he talks about this, the metaphor is the he-goat that goes from west to east with his feet not even touching the ground. And the notable horn that is there. And of course that's Alexander. And it talks about that, that at his demise, at the height of his power, that the horn was broken into four pieces. And his kingdom would be divided into among four generals after his death. But here is a mighty man, Alexander the Great. He was 32 years old when he died in the year 323 B.C. And he died an alcoholic. He died a drunk. He could lead men into battle. He was fearless. He could accomplish great things. He had a lot of so much ability but he did not learn to control himself. And I mention that because 
It's not like all these other qualities will make up for that. And that's what this proverb is saying. And so, again, we, we look to ourselves and being the kind of persons that, that we should be. For example, last evening, we talked about the concept found in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 43 that David, at the end of the day, when it was time to go home, he returned to bless his house. Now, see, that's something you have to purpose in your heart to do. I remember one time attend, attending a seminar. I got a lot out of it years ago. And uh, you don't remember everything, but there are several things that I picked up. And, uh, for example, the, the concept of, of ministering to your family, of being a blessing to your family. And the speaker was saying, when you pull in uh, your, your car at the end of the day, he said, you might need to wait five minutes before you go inside. Just settle down a minute and just ask yourself, how can I minister to these people who live in here? Well, see, that's having a servant's heart. That's not what are others doing to me and everybody catering around me and I'm the, I must be the center of attention all the time. That's, um, that's, that's having some self-control. Yes, you've got frustrations. Maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic. Don't you hate it when somebody blows their horn at you, sounds their horn at you just because they're impatient and you've not done anything? I mean, if you've... If you're sitting there texting and the light turns green, you deserve somebody blowing a horn at you. I mean, that, that's just what you get for not paying attention. Put the phone down. But you, you've got rude drivers and, you know, you, mm, that, well, there's just a lot of things like that in the course of the day and unfairness at work or uh, customers if you're working with the public and all those things. And you can take it out on your family. Or you can think because you've had such a hard day, everybody should be concerned now about ministering to you. David returned to bless his house. Remember we talked about the concept from Ezekiel that the very last verse after talking about this prophetic temple, this symbolic temple in this city and all that measuring, that the point of it in the last verse of the book is the name of the place is the Lord is there. He's in our midst. That's what makes it special. And so, just to say that much about a couple of things that we mentioned last evening. When I say looking to ourselves, I'm talking about Christ in each of us. Colossians 1.27, when Paul there, what he's doing is he's summarizing the gospel, which he says, which is Christ in you, our hope of glory. I referenced the attitude Jesus had in John chapter 4 last evening, to doing the will of the Father. And it's in that passage he was in Samaria. Actually, he was uh, near, near Sychar, Jacob's well. And after that wonderful conversation with that woman of, of Samaria, and she is so animated with what she's learned and now has seen the Messiah that she left her water pots and she's taking off just as the disciples are returning from the city. And they've got food because they were hungry and Jesus was tired. They'd walked all the way from Judea to that point. And Jesus was weary and sat by the well. And so now they're bringing the food and Well, here, have something to eat. And he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. He was so involved in teaching that woman and so delighted that she had received the word as she had that his appetite for the moment was suspended. I mean, Jesus got hungry just like we do. He got thirsty and he got weary just like we do. He was fully flesh and fully divine and 
uh, he, there never was a time that he was not divine. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 and verse 14. But anyway, getting back to John 4, uh, then the disciples start talking among themselves when he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. They say, is somebody giving him something to eat? And that's when Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. So we're talking about Jesus' attitude toward doing the Father's will was that it's, it's more basic. I mean, you, you, sometimes we say, well, you've got to eat. If, if we're talking about what's the most important things or most basic and essential things, it's like, well, you've got to eat. But there's something even more basic than that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, what does that have to do with preparation for marriage? Everything. Because if you make your will toward obeying the Lord as Jesus' will toward obeying the Father, you're laying the foundation for a wonderful home. You have the attitude toward doing the Father's will that Jesus had where your, very, your, your food, your meat is to do His will. That's more important to you than eating, more important to you than anything. Wow, you're laying a good foundation for the home, you see. I love to, to read over in John chapter 4. It's John chapter, not John 4, we just, we're in John 4. In Acts chapter 4, I meant to say, this is where Peter and John have been arrested. And uh, they are... They're being threatened. And of course, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the same body, the governing body of the Jews, the council that Jesus stood before. They condemned Jesus to death. And now the apostles, who before had been scattered and frightened, now the apostles Peter and John are called on the carpet. You know, what, what do you mean by this? And, and uh, the, the, the point in question, in chapter 3, a man had been healed there. And so by what authority are you doing these things? And um, who gave you this authority? By what name, verse 7 of, of chapter 4, what, what power have you done this? But no longer are the, the disciples, Peter and John, cowering, trembling, fearful. Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said in verse 10, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone that was, that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And Peter went on to say, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They weren't expecting that. And there was, a, there was a period where they're trying to figure out what's going on. And then the next verse says, now it clicked. And the text says they recognized. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You see, that Sanhedrin had seen somebody else that they could not in intimidate. They had seen someone else stand before them that was fearless and would not back down. It wasn't a common thing, but they had seen it in Jesus. And now, now what had, what's seeming deja vu, it's familiar. Now, oh yes, 
these men had been with Jesus, and it shows. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the wife can tell that her husband has been with Jesus? And the husband is married to a woman that it's her goal as she studies the Word. She wants to be more and more like the Lord. She listens to His Word. She's seeking to do that. And he can tell she's been with Jesus. And children, as they look to parents, which we all make mistakes, but the overriding thing that the children see is that mother and daddy have been with Jesus. They're spending time with him. They want to be like him. They want to honor his will. Don't you see that that's the kind of thing? These are building blocks. You can build a home with these kind of principles. But if they are ignored, they're just, it's going to be like the foundation is cracked and the roof is leaking and, and it's like, well, where's all that mildew and mold coming from? Just all those kinds of problems that can be in a house will be in our family if we don't take heed to these very important passages. It, and, and again, I know we, we've, we could look at a lot of passages where we're concerned about what someone else does in, in the family, the, the, the spouse, the children, the parents, whoever we're not, and look at the other. And we're going to do that. We're going to try to cover all the bases. But I keep saying we start looking to ourselves. That's really where it begins. And the, the, this concept of, of unselfishness, I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13 in the passing last evening that love does not seek its own. Could I get you to turn with me to the other passage that's there, which I've not looked at yet, and that is 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and in verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, and it has a footnote on this word perilous that shows that that word means times of stress. Here are grievous times. Here are perilous times. Here are times of stress. Well, what causes bad times? What causes grievous times? And then he makes a list of what contributes to that. And I could not prove that there is a hierarchy here. I could not prove that he's going from the greatest to the least or the least to the greatest, but I can read and I can see what he mentions first. And after saying grievous times are going to come, the first thing that he mentions is men will be lovers of themselves. I'll tell you, selfishness, just plain old selfishness, where the, the husband's not looking to the needs of, of his wife or, or the children think it's just, it has to be all about them and, the, and their wants and wishes. Well, I mean, this is just true in society. When society is made up of people, that are lovers of themselves. That makes, well, what is this generation called? How many times have you heard this called the me generation? And it's not called that for nothing. It's, it's, it's about self. Have you, have you checked out at the grocery store? I haven't noticed this in a while, but I used to see this self magazine. Self magazine. So everything's about self. Look at it at the, as the verse continues. Lovers of money. Boastful, proud, and he mentions a number of things. And then in verse 4, he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, there's three, three times there that something very valuable is misplaced. 
lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Don't you hate to misplace things? I read one time many years ago, and it stuck with me, that the average American spends 16 and a half hours per year looking for his car keys. Well, somebody's looking more than that because I don't look for mine that much. Now, I don't mean I never have to look for them. There's been, you know, once in a while that happens. But it's not a regular thing. I have a place that I put my keys, and so I don't regularly have to look for my keys. I'm not one, one of those that does that. But I misplaced other things. Let me show you. This flash drive. Man, this flash drive has a lot of stuff on it. And uh, I did a meeting in Vermont using this last fall, uh, this past, well, fall a year ago. And I thought for sure I'd left it up in Vermont. Looked everywhere, looked everywhere, and finally found it. I forget now where. Well, lo and behold, I made another trip, and same thing happened again. Looked everywhere, looked everywhere, finally found it. And so I don't, I don't like it. I don't like to misplace things. I don't like to think I know where something is and then it's not there. But that's frustrating. That's not really a big deal. But when you take something as valuable as your love, your affection, your heart, and you're a lover of pleasure, a lover of money, a lover of self, rather than a lover of God, that is a serious thing, to misplace something so valuable as your love and put it where it doesn't need to be. That's serious. And it causes problems. It causes problems in society. It causes problems in the church. I was talking to an elder one time that, uh, in another congregation, not where we were, but in another congregation. He's talking about a brother that I did happen to know who was with them, but no longer with them. And he said, well, you know when he was with us, he said every time he had a cold, Someone in his family had any, anything at all. They wanted that announced. They wanted to be seen about. They wanted cards. They wanted it to be mentioned publicly. They wanted prayers if it was about them. But he said, we could have all manner of things going on. People nigh to death, special needs, all kinds of... And he said, you'd never hear from them. Well, what about that? What about someone that's always willing to take things the wrong way? And then now, see, you can go to Facebook instead of show it to your brother between you and him alone, you can take it to Facebook and let the whole world see, you know, that you've been offended. Your feelings have been hurt. Don't you see? That just causes problems. And see, you bring that into the home, and just one person in the house that's given to selfishness is going to cause problems in the home. So just rid yourself of that, and you'll be doing everyone a big favor. Something else I'm going to develop a little bit later and, but I just want to touch on it this evening as something foundational, and that is you have to make the faith your faith. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 5, Paul writes Timothy, Brian, it just seems to my ears that this PA system is coming and going. Is that just my ears? or What do you all, you know, I, I don't know what to do about that. In 2 Timothy 1, though, in verse 5, Paul writes, and he says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you also. And so the faith had been in his mother and grandmother, 
But now he says, I am persuaded in you also. Timothy had made it his own. He didn't believe what he believed just because his mother did or his grandmother did. He had internalized it. It was his own possession. He made it his own. He was grateful to be taught, I'm sure, by his mother, his grandmother. That's a wonderful thing, but he had to make the faith his own. So what have we said this evening thus far? Do you see my point? I'm talking about start out by being what you should be as a faithful child of God, growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's where it must start. That's my first point. But as we're talking tonight on the subject of preparation for, for marriage, Preparation for having the home as God would have it. There are some things that must be considered. And it's not like after you get emotionally involved in, with somebody. It's not after you're married, then you, well, well, I wonder about that. But we're talking about, again, in the preparation for marriage stage. In other words, long before you're married, you need to know God's will in these matters. And I'm talking about who is scripturally eligible for marriage. I'm just going to briefly mention this. If someone has a question, I'd be glad to, if, if we can, you know, have time to discuss something further, I'd be glad to do that. I know that Bryant would be as well. But first of all, one who has never been lawfully married, one who has never been joined by God to another, one is free to marry who has never been lawfully married and scripturally married. Secondly, one whose spouse has died. One whose spouse has died is free to marry another, provided that other is eligible for marriage. The Bible teaches that in Romans 7 and verse 3. And in the third place, one who has put away his spouse for the cause of fornication. That is the singular exception Jesus gives for the putting away and for the remarriage that is subsequent to that. And so that person is free to marry. And we would also mention, in keeping with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that when there has been a separation, when one has put asunder, when, when there has been a divorce, depending on your translation, some translations will use the word divorce in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and 11. But when, when Paul talks there about uh, the position that the wife is in, She's not to leave her husband, but if she does, let her remain unmarried, showing that a divorce has occurred, or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, the thing is, you, reconciliation is preferable, but it takes two to reconcile. And if that cannot be done, what must not be done is to enter into an unscriptural marriage, and that's, that's why the injunction is remain unmarried or else be reconciled to your spouse. So here are two people that are separated, they've been divorced, they were scripturally married to each other, but now they're reconciled and they're, they're coming back together. That also is the thing that's under consideration there in that passage. So this is something that is basic, but we need to know that and study that, and again, before we tie the knot, so to speak. We need to know not only is a person eligible or not, if one, if one is not eligible for marriage, 
Don't think, well, I'm just going to go out with this person. I'm just going to date this person. I'm just doing this for companionship, but we're not going to get married. If one is not scripturally eligible for marriage, he's not eligible for what is done in a courtship kind of relationship, you see. And so, is he or she scripturally eligible? But then there's God's attitude that should be so important. Just, just again to summarize what biblical teaching on this, we said a while ago, it is God that designed the home. And when God had made Adam, he saw how incomplete Adam was with just Adam. And the thing that's so interesting is in the first chapter of Genesis, when all the six days of creation are mentioned, you have a repetition of the idea where God made this and he saw it was good. He saw it was good. He saw it was good. And you come to the last verse in chapter 1, and it, it says, Tov uh, ma'od, not only good, tov, but tov ma'od, very good, the modifier there. But now for the first time it says not good. Here's something not good. And it is not good that the man should be alone. And so he says, therefore, will I make a help that is suitable for him. And he did that. And when he presented uh, Adam, when he presented Eve to Adam, then you have the statement, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That takes you on down really to verse 24 in that passage of Scripture. And so this is God's attitude that, he saw man was lonely. He saw man was incomplete. And God says, he that finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. When people think that celibacy somehow is the more holy state in our area, just a few miles from our home, there's a, a, a shrine that costs millions of dollars. And um, people come from all over. In, in, the, in the top tourist attractions of Alabama, this shrine will be listed. And what is promoted there is celibacy among the nuns and among the, the priests. And the Bible says that such in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is called doctrines of demons when men forbid to marry and command to abstain from meats. That's not the preferred state. We see, and, and that doesn't mean if one, one chooses to be single, he's sinning. It doesn't mean everybody has to marry. But the idea of forbidding to marry and saying that that's a greater form of holiness than marriage contradicts the Scripture. And that kind of thing is, is condemned in the Bible. And so marriage is, is commended. Let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. And the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. It's a lifelong commitment that we make to, to one another before God. Now, that's God's attitude toward marriage. All right, what is his attitude toward divorce? Here's his attitude toward divorce. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, Malachi 2 and verse 3. Here's what Jesus said when he was asked about divorce. What God has joined together... Let not man separate. Remember this morning we were talking about reading the Bible with, with purposeful reading. We talked this morning in, at, at uh, uh, Buddy and Tony's home. We were talking about the subject of looking and asking questions. Is there a command to obey? What about that? 
What about this passage? What do you see? What God has joined together, let not man separate. That's a command, isn't it? But to the married, I give charge, or instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, the Bible teaches in Romans 7 and verse 3 that if while her husband lives she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. Now, sometimes people are called names that are, you know, derogatory, but, but that's not the point here. The re, the, what he's saying is she should be called an adulteress because that's what she is. She should be called an adulteress because she's an adulteress. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And whoever... And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Mark, the 10th chapter, that shows it works either way, whether it's the man or the woman. I don't know how many of you knew Irvin Lee because time is, is, is going on. Brother Lee was here in Savannah, I assume right here in this building, in 1974 when he had a massive heart attack and was in the hospital at Savannah for some weeks. I don't know if any of you have heard about that or, or know about that, but I mentioned him at this time because for many years he was a school teacher in, in schools operated by brethren, receiving not church contributions, but operated private contributions. And so he was head of the school. He also taught in school, and he taught math in school. He taught Bible in school. But he made this point. He said he taught students, he taught sixth grade students, and he said, I never had a sixth grade student. Usually that's 11 years old, right? He said, I never had a sixth grade student that could not understand God's marriage law. Now we act like it's so complicated and all the what ifs and what about that and what this other. And he said, I never had a sixth grade student that could not understand God's marriage law. It's just not. Now the situation people get themselves into may be complicated. But the word of God is not complicated. The Word of God is clear. And so these are things that, that we must know. His attitude toward marriage, his attitude toward divorce, and God's attitude toward adultery. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Paul asked the question, do you not know that the righteous, unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? And among other things, he mentions fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals and sodomites, among others, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to know these things before we enter into marriage. We're talking about preparation. When should we know this? After we're married? Well, whenever you learn it, that's great, but the ideal thing is that's part of your preparation. But starting with yourself, it is proper and it's necessary to look at the attitude, disposition of the prospective wife, for example. It's important to look at the maturity level that's there. Some people are just so immature. I've known, I've known of people who got married and then decided they didn't want to get married anymore and they thought they could go back home to their parents. Are there indications now that she just can't be happy, that she whines, that she complains? Probably, most likely, that'll be brought into the marriage. 
That's not really a great thing. Uh, will she live on your expected, your anticipated income? That's an important question. These are things you can talk about and find out about and look at before you get married. Does she have strong, godly character? Does she live by biblical convictions and principles, like Titus 2, verses 3 through 5? I'm asking, does she have common sense? Does she have stability? I mean, there's some good people that the common sense gene is, is just not there. And if you marry somebody that's all the time bouncing off the wall and, and just not stable, you're really going to have problems. So these are, these are things to look at in, in someone. And again, the underlying thing of all this, of course, is one who is a Christian. But here are some specifics also. But it works both ways, not only for the wife, but also to look at the husband. I wish that women would remember that marriage is not a reformatory. I was talking just a few weeks ago to a woman that is having some serious problems. And I was expressing, I'm oh, sorry about that. And, and she said, you know, I saw, I saw these traits. I saw a lot of these traits before we married. But I really thought we could work on that. I really thought that, that we could fix that. But she said, that didn't happen. It just got worse and worse. And so don't look at it. Don't, don't think that, that this is something that, that uh, you know, he flies off the handle. He doesn't have self-control. He loses his temper. But once we get married, he won't do that. Look at how he treats his other family members. Is he respectful of his parents? If he talks back to his parents, if he shows no respect for his mother, you think he's going to respect you? Not likely. Does he accept responsibility? I remember a friend of mine was talking about a gospel preacher. Well studied, very capable gospel preacher. Had a daughter. And um, this guy that she was interested in, my friend was at the preacher's house one time, and he came flying in the house, jumped over the couch, and just landed on the couch. You know, just kind of a, just, just jumping in there. And this gospel preacher's daughter was just crazy about him. And he just—he was totally irresponsible, and she was just so attracted to him. I mean, how do you explain that? How does that work? Is he industrious? Does he see a job through its completion? Not just talking about it. First Timothy five and verse eight says, "If a man provides not for his own, especially they of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel." It's right to ask the question: Does he bring out the best in me? And I want to—I want to close this study with a message for teenagers from Bill Hall who is very positive about young people and I've heard him address our young guys in the leadership camp and ask guys that are age 14 to 18 fast forward in your mind another 10 or 15 years what do you want to be at that time do you want to be a faithful Christian do you want to be married, married to a faithful Christian, have, have children that are in growing in a leadership capacity. He says, these are noble goals, but we would say to our young friends, what you're doing now and decisions you make over the next five or so years will greatly determine what your noble, whether your noble goals will become a reality. Number one, carefully guard and maintain your commitment. 
He's talking about the commitment you made when you made your good confession and you were baptized into Christ. Guard that. Maintain that commitment. Stay true to that. Number two, keep your heart pure. Brother Hall talks about the things that can corrupt our heart. He mentions pornography, immodesty, immoral people who boast of their immoral conduct, filth on the internet and in the media, boys or girls that would aggressively try to break down your morals. He said avoid that. Keep your heart pure. Number three, number three, increase your knowledge of the scriptures. If you learn of a private Bible study, he's assuming you're attending all the services. But if you learn of an additional study taught by a sound and knowledge, knowledgeable preacher, ask if you may attend. Then apply yourself. Spend whatever time is necessary outside the study to get the material in mind. And so, the knowledge of God's Word. Number four, marry someone who will help you go to heaven. And he addresses both the boys and the girls, and he says this, a good rule to follow. Never go out with someone... And, unless you think at the time you would be willing to marry the person. Your choice of a mate will greatly determine your usefulness in the Lord's service. And number five, boys, prepare yourself for the work that will enable you to support your family. It is your responsibility. Don't assume your wife will work and contribute to the family income. In other words, she may do that, but don't count on that. It's your job to support your family. So those are some those are some helpful suggestions that all have to do with preparing for the home as God would have it. So what I'm saying is we need to start right. We need to start right and respect God's order in the home. Remember, as we concluded last evening, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You listen well tonight, and I appreciate that. We're going to get our songbooks, and again extend the Lord's invitation to any who have not yet obeyed the gospel. Remember, that's, that's where we need to start. Take care of that first, and we'd be so happy to help you to, to render obedience to the gospel or to renew your commitment to the Lord as together we stand and sing.